Hi, and welcome to The Badass Moms, where we moms learn to achieve fitness and health goals despite being sleep-deprived and overworked. Here's your host, Nicole, the super busy mommy coach. Hello, and welcome to Badass Moms, brought to you by the Holistic Therapies Directory. I'm Nicole Cruz, super busy mommy coach. Really quick, I want to tell you about something exciting I have going on. I am launching my first ever do-it-yourself transformation program, which means that this is one that you can do at home on your own time. And I am looking for five moms to test it out at a huge discount before it's released in January. So if you're interested in figuring out how you can get fit despite being sleep deprived and interrupted every two minutes by young kids, uh, message me. That's the only way to do it. Message me at Super Busy Mommy Coach on Facebook or Instagram, and I'll send you the details. If you're interested in purchasing the program and the spots have already filled up by the time you hear this, there is a pre-sale. You will be getting it comes out to 75, 80% off if you purchase before the launch date on January 2nd. So follow my page or get in touch with me in order to do that. On today's episode, I am super excited to have Veronica Karras. Uh, Veronica is a certified financial planner professional with over a decade of experience in the industry. She has worked with ultra high net worth individuals, individuals with overwhelming debt, individuals who never had money and are, are suddenly inheriting a boatload and everyone in between. Veronica has a deep-seated passion for helping people make sound financial decisions and become financially independent. She's an expert in all aspects of financial planning, including debt management, credit building, estate planning, education planning, retirement planning, insurance, and tax planning. Veronica is a loved advisor, author, and advocate for financial literacy programs across the United States. She lives in Port Washington, New York with her husband and their three rescue pets. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Uh, so Veronica and I were connected by a mutual contact. I put up a post on Facebook saying, you know, I'm looking for someone to do a show, um, you know, a financial advisor, a financial planner to do an episode where we talk about creative ways of getting out of difficult financial situations. And um, one of our mutual contacts tagged her. And when I spoke with Veronica the first time, I was like, oh my God, you are so perfect. And yeah. so that's what we're going to be talking about today because a lot of moms who are in the toughest situations, like single moms or you know, moms who are, you know, have their kids going to college while their parents come down with, you know, a horrible illness that requires a lot of medical bills. Um, a lot of people are in these situations and the basic advice of, you know, spend less, save more, be responsible. It's just, it doesn't cut it. And you, you need something a little bit more than that in order to keep your head above water. And Veronica, our last conversation <laughs> like blew my mind with how much you were able to offer on that topic. So I'm really excited to talk about it with you here. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, you know, I share your, and I guess a lot of people's frustration around finances. And we talked about this a little. It often feels like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place because not only is finance, financial 
um, literacy and competency not really taught in schools anywhere. But also, as you grow up, parents often tend to keep their finances secret, um, even if the parents have good habits, right? They tend to like not want to loop their kids in really on how to manage finances. And you kind of go out there into the workforce, you're filling out complicated tax documents, like I remember filling out my first W-4 and like I came from as I was raised by a single mom and my family, I come from a family of immigrants. So like nobody knew the right way to fill out a W-4, right? It was just kind of like you were guessing what to put on the paper. And it's something that's directing the rest of your financial life because I feel like once you start, um, start like a leg behind or you start with the wrong decision it just keeps tumbling. It tends to snowball, right? And if you start with a good decision, it snowballs the other way. So it's a huge passion of mine. So again, thank you for having me here. And I'm so glad we connected. And thank you to Julia who connected us randomly. Exactly, definitely. (laughs) Thanks, Jules. Um, Yeah, no, you're, you're so right. It's not taught in schools. You have to learn it on your own. And then there are you know, even if you're pretty well-versed in finances as a layperson, like you've done your homework, when you get into one of those tough situations that seems almost impossible, mm-hmm. having someone who's a professional, who knows the tricks, who knows, you know, that deeper layer of it can be the difference between keeping your head above water or just going into a downward spiral. Yes, absolutely. And second passion project of mine. That's the other thing, right? Most financial advice and financial advisors are geared towards people who already have money, who have wealth, Mm -hmm. right? There's very, unless you're willing to do the legwork and research and really be self-taught, there's very, very, very few. um, I've come across one professional in my career who's willing to take on clients um, and really coach them. Cause that's really what we're talking about. It's like coaching someone how to get out of a tough financial situation. So it touches on a whole separate thing, but yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the journey that you go on when you're at rock bottom or near rock bottom, or when things were all out of debt, that's, you know, just hovering on your shoulders, it affects your entire life, right? For people who, you know, are married, it can, you know, their finances are such a huge cause of divorce in this country. And for people who, you know, are on their own, it's hard. It's hard to think about like, wow, I can't make ends meet now. And my kid's not even in college yet. Like, how are you going to do it then? Right. So, you know, I, I want to help as many people as I can. Yeah, which is great. And I also feel like there's kind of a stigma to it because, um, you know, when I went through difficult financial times, you know, you're looking for advice and you get things like, well, you know, I can't really help you until you have, you know, this amount of money saved up. And okay, like that's fine, but then who can help me? And so you start doing Google searches and you get things like, you know, well, you shouldn't be having that $5 latte every morning. I'm like, $5, I don't even buy coffee or tea. I drink water because that is an unnecessary item. And I don't have money in my budget right now for unnecessary items. You know, like it's like there's this stigma that if you're in a financial situation like that, it's because you are somehow irresponsible and blowing money away. It's like, well, you know, you blow a hundred dollars on beer over the weekend. What do you expect? And I'm like, I don't drink beer. Like (laughs) this is not helpful advice people, you know? And I just, I've experienced that frustration and talking 
I mean, like, I wish I was able to talk to you when I was in that situation, but even now being mm -hmm. out of it, but having that, you know, being haunted by that experience, talking to you is like a breath of fresh air because you come back with the, um, you know, more, um, you know, the deeper kind of advice, the advice that a lay person necessarily wouldn't know. Um, and I really want to kind of jump into that. And so imagine, you know, for those of you listening, um, you might have been here or there's a good chance at some point in your life, you're going to face a financial crisis. Um, and we're talking about the big ones here, like financial rock bottom, like you are on the verge of bankruptcy, or you maybe you ha you've had to go through bankruptcy, you're barely keeping your head above water, your expenses exceed your income, you've gone through savings, you're maxing out credit cards, like that tough situation. And we're going to assume, you know, for this episode that it's not because you have a gambling habit, or you're shopping too much, or you're just, you know, throwing away money, we're going to assume that it's an actual crisis, you know, like a, a tough diagnosis and you've put all your money into set, you know, getting the best medical care for you or a loved one or, you know, some, you know, God forbid, like a house burning down, whatever the case may be, we're going to assume this is an actual, um, you know, crisis and that you're, you didn't get yourself into this situation because you're irresponsible. And then, so Veronica, I want to, you know, as we were talking about, just guide people, like what are the steps you take in that situation? And then what are the steps that you can take to get yourself to a place of thriving when it seems impossible? Yeah. So the first thing you would do regardless of what's going on is actually figure out where your money goes. And a part of that for those people who are at rock bottom and, um, and have a lot of debt you want to figure out how much your debt is actually costing you. So you want to do the math on how much you're paying each month, the total balance that you have, and then, you know, what the interest rate is. And the way you want to write it out, if you're writing it out, is you want to go highest interest rate to lowest. So most expensive debt to carry to least expensive. And then you want to be really really unafraid of sharing your story with your creditors. And I know that sounds really awkward, but don't be afraid to negotiate your debt. So I get a lot of questions on like, if, if you have a lot of credit card debt, should you do debt consolidation? Debt consolidation works by someone is buying your debt, giving you, paying it off to you. You pay them monthly at a theoretically lower rate. But then what they do is they negotiate with your creditors on your behalf. And the way they do that is by basically running your credit score into the ground. So they will actually not make your payments on time or not make your payments at all for a period of time. Your creditors, especially credit cards, get so desperate for any kind of money that they're willing to take pennies on the dollar. Now, you as the actual consumer and the actual customer of the credit card company, you have negotiating power. And every, as much as they don't want to admit it and they don't publicize it, every credit card has what's called a hardship plan or payment hardship plan. And different credit cards will have it for different amounts of time. Actually, every creditor is supposed to have some sort of hardship plan for people who face hardships, like it happens. Um, and know that a hardship plan works is you're not actually jeopardizing your credit. And that's super important. Um, because what you don't want to do is get into a situation that a temporary setback in your life creates a permanent financial struggle for you. Mm -hmm. So you want to get ahead as early as you can by calling every single credit card company and negotiating your debt. 
And what that looks like is like, look, I have this medical condition or look, I have these expenses or I can't keep up with my interest rate payments. And I've been on time, you know, for the last X many years and I'm, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. Is there anything you could do to help me out? Can you lower my interest rate? And you literally want to go on that list you made on most expensive debt, top to bottom. And usually the way a hardship payment plan works, especially with major credit card companies, um, to use it, they'll decrease your monthly minimums by about a quarter of whatever they are now. That's, you can do some math and they'll put you on a zero interest plan for X amount of time. It can be up to five years. Five years is pretty much the most generous. And you can figure out what that's going to look like just by taking your total balance and dividing it by 60 months. That'll be your every month payment. And as long as you don't miss a payment, you stay in the program. The account is temporarily closed. It doesn't affect your credit and it won't hurt you because you're going to make your payments on time. So as long as you can meet that obligation, make your payments on time, you're good. And the more of your credit card companies you can do that with, or the more of your creditors you can do that with, that's sort of like found money, right? Because the reason your minimum payments go up so dramatically is insane interest rates, right? It's like you and I talked about this if you're using a credit card for the majority of your expenses, you're always going like a penny <laughs> and the credit card company is charging you 3%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you always want to tip the scales the other way. You always want to out earn whatever your debt is charging you, which is why so many people like, for instance, refinance when mortgage rates are low, right? Like you can probably out earn your mortgage rate. So it makes sense. Like, those are, you want to get to that place where you are, where you have a window, right? So the the key is creating a window, and some of it could be adjustments. Like I brought up a W four earlier. Make sure you're paying the right amount in taxes. Like it's always worth it. Just have a tax, have someone um, look at your tax return at least once. And a lot of people use TurboTax, but you're getting a lot of money back at the end of the year. That's money you could have throughout the year instead and be able to use it to help your situation um, instead of making an interest-free loan to the IRS, right? So those are like, you know, if you can create some wiggle room in your budget um, and without like, you know, losing the roof over your head, obviously, you want to decrease that like monthly debt servicing fees, essentially. Um, and try to get them to as little as possible. And then if you have a zero interest card, now that list that you have where they've agreed to zero interest, now that just goes to the bottom of the list, right? Now it's zero interest to carry that debt. You paid the minimum, you'd keep it going for five years. It doesn't matter, right? Because now the penny that you earn in your savings account is actually more than the 0% in interest that you're paying to the creditor. So it works out in your favor instead, right? And once you start creating that window, that opportunity, that space of opportunity, whatever money that you're creating, instead of putting it back into debt, you want to start saving. Because at that point, that's kind of the next step, I guess. You want to start building what a, an emergency fund, right? Because life happens. And the way you stay out of debt and emergency debt and medical debt and all of that is by having a cash buffer. So one of the great things about a hardship plans, if you get onto them with all of your credit cards, you can no longer use those cards, which is a really good way to transition to a cash lifestyle, right? You always want to be in a position where you have more cash than you have expenses to pay. 
And that just, even if you can create $20 worth of wiggle room on a monthly basis, start putting $20 aside, right? Um, because that's going to help. It's just going to help. And if you can create, you know, three to six months worth of expenses in cash or in some short-term liquid vehicle, like that's where you want to be. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, last time we spoke, you know, I, we had talked about the tax form and I was like, I was like, yeah, no, I get that. But I like that. I don't need any discipline and that it's sort of a default savings And you made the best point ever. You're like, yeah, but if you were to instead take the money that, you know, they were paying to the IRS, overpaying to the IRS and put it in, into some sort of like short-term bond or, you know, high interest savings account, you'd be making money. I was like, oh crap, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, the tax system, if you are either getting money back or owing money at the end of the year, you're doing it wrong. The tax system in our country is designed for you to net even every single year. You're not supposed to owe money. You're not supposed to get money back. It's supposed to be net even. The owing money is a concern because you might have interest and penalties for not paying enough. But the getting money back to me is a bigger concern because it's an opportunity cost. It's everything you could have done with the money if you had it for a whole year Mm -hmm. instead of giving it to the IRS because they don't pay you anything extra back, right? So even if you had it in a CD, if you had it in a short-term bond fund, if you're not comfortable with investments, I get that. Do something with it, right? You want to not be giving it to the IRS. And I know there's a lot of people come to me and they're like, it's like four savings. I'm like, open another account and force yourself to save into it. <laughs> money come right out. Because it's it's it makes no sense. It's it's money you keep hostage. And especially if you're in a, you know, in like a rock bottom situation. And to me, there's no such thing. There's always a way out of any financial struggle that anyone has. But if any type of, uh, if you're in a hard financial situation, you want to keep as many of your dollars as you possibly can for as long as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you're in that situation, that tax return, that could be a few thousand dollars or maybe like 10 or 20, whatever it is, you know, the interest you might earn on it could be small, but when you're in rock bottoms, like I remember times when $20 was a problem. You know what I mean? Having an extra $20 expense. I was like, where is this $20 going to come from? You know, like it doesn't matter how much money you have. It matters how much you have to cover with the amount of money you have. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so just keeping more money, as much money as you can in your pocket all the time, in your pocket, in your favor. Right. Mm -hmm. So you always want to make sure in that same way that the interest ratio works in your favor, all of your income works in your favor too. Right. So I love the government. I think we live in a beautiful country and I still think everyone should pay exactly what they owe and not more than they owe. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Okay, cool. So now like, let's get to that next stage. So you're, you're working out of your debt. You, maybe you're still in debt, but you're paying it down. Things have kind of um, stabilized. You're on your path. What are the things to start thinking of and to start um, putting into place as the opportunity arises? And what are some signs that the opportunity has arisen and it's time to do that thing? Yeah. So I would say the first step, if you're an individual income earner in your household, if you're just one person, you'll um, actually want to have six months worth of expenses in cash or near cash, like very, very highly liquid. If you're a dual income household, you'll want to have three months in cash. 
the logic behind that being it's unlikely that both people will lose their job at the same time, right? So you should have three months worth of expenses, which will really cover six months, right? Um, cash, as we all know, doesn't earn that much these days. And I know a lot of people are, uh, you know, kind of super sensitive when it comes to investing, but I would encourage most people to try and have as much as they're physically comfortable with, um, or as little as they're comfortable with rather in cash and then start investing in like short-term bonds or something like that, just because that'll give you a little bit more return and it'll feel a little bit better than just cash. Um, these days does. I also don't believe in products like CDs and things like that because they lock your money away. I don't believe in any, any type of thing where you have to have a lockup on your money. I think that's just, especially if you're paying off debt or you you're in some sort of uncertain situation, you want to have access to your money, right? So like a short-term bond fund is liquid with two days notice. That's different than like a 12 or 24 month CD, which you would have to actually pay and lose money to get out of if you needed the money. You just don't want to put yourself in that situation. Once you have that, I think it's, you know, you start just investing, invest everything you can. I think the biggest mistake a lot of people make is trying to time the market. The news scares us, the media scares us, the market falls every other day if you listen to the news. Um, And I know a lot of it has to do with just people don't have that much knowledge. But honestly, every study you could read out there on basic investing shows, your best bet is start putting money in an S&P 500 fund. Most professional investors don't outperform the S&P 500. There's a famous Warren Buffett bet on this that most people can't outperform the S&P 500. Once you've built that cash reserve, you want to start investing at least in an S&P 500 fund. And as you start climbing, you know, once you start getting into big, big numbers or bigger numbers, you know, let's say $100,000 or something like that, fifty dollars to $100,000, you'll want to diversify and you'll want to have multiple indices. Like you'll want to invest in mid-sized companies and small-sized companies and international companies and all of that. Like that's kind of you know, more complex investing. But I think the place to start is build the cash reserve. Um, so you have three to six months worth of expenses, whatever you spend, which is why I said the very first exercise is figuring out where your money actually goes. Mm-hmm. And also on that note, figure out what you're saving towards. I know you and I talked about this a little bit also. A lot of people are like, I save because my dad at some point in my life told me to save or my mom told me to save or something like that you want to know what you're saving towards. And I always say, if you can't figure it out, like you don't have a specific goal, like buying a house or um, a kid's college education or something like that, you're saving for either the rainy day or you're saving to not have to work at some point in your life. At some point in your life, you won't have to work. And then my favorite, which I always tell people closer, you know, to their twenties and thirties who are kind of are like retirement is so far off. Like I'm going to be 70. Like I'm not thinking about that. Um, having savings and having investments creates opportunities for you. Right. So just the ability, like if you're miserable at your job to, to walk out, to quit your job, to not have to be there. Right. It's just creating space. Anytime you have savings versus debt, you create more, opportunity and leverage for yourself to do what you want to do and what makes you feel good. And I think there's no substitute for that. Right. So, um, you know, I, in my book, 
I lovingly call it like F you money, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to just say F you to some, some situation or something that's no longer serving you and you need to walk away from it for your own mental health. That's a huge thing. There are so many people in the United States who do not have that, right? And then they're stuck in like miserable jobs, right? So um, that's a huge, you know, like, you know, we talked about a huge passion of mine is just creating opportunities. I think um, I've had personally experiences where I really hated where I worked and I couldn't leave. Um, and I remember that feeling of like being stuck and what am I going to do? And I have to suffer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that's actually when I personally started saving money. I like set a deadline. I was like, okay, I need to just get out of this. So if I save, you know, 70% of my paycheck for the next six months, then I can take two months and find a job and that should be fine. Like that was my rationale. But had I started earlier, I wouldn't have to have worked those, you know, five months to get there in the first place. So um, I think that's just so important. And just investing. The earlier you invest, the one thing you can't make up for is time, right? Compounding on time. I honestly wish somebody had told me when I was like 14 and started my first job making $5 an hour that you couldn't make up for time because I would have started investing then, right? And so even if you can only put away $20 a month, that $20 a month, if it's invested, will compound and grow so significantly that within a year or two, you'll have thousands and it'll feel good. Mm-hmm. Like it'll, it just starts to feel really good. And when you see that number growing in your own investment account and you see that it's, you know, that it's your money and you have, and you can take a trip, you can quit your job, you can, you know, your X amount towards paying for your kid's college education or X amount towards a home or to a charity, whatever is important for you, it's the most heartwarming feeling to be in that place. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's great. Um, And so you mentioned keeping your money in cash or something very liquid. What are some of the non-cash options that are pretty liquid for that, you know, say three to six months savings that you have? Yeah. So short-term bond funds, you know, something as simple, I'll I'll throw out a name, even though I usually don't make specific investment recommendations. Um, You'll want to do your own research, but you know, Vanguard total return bond fund, easy, super simple, non-expensive way to go. Um, anything that's like that. So any exchange traded fund that's liquid, that's a bond, that's a bond fund. I say bonds, by the way, instead of stocks on these, cause stocks are also highly liquid. If you invest in like an exchange traded fund or even buy individual stocks, they're highly liquid. They just come with risks, right? So whatever your cash buffer is, you want it to be stable the way that cash is stable. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say bond funds, they're an easy way to go. And you know, um, for the most part are the stable part of any portfolio, especially on a short-term basis. So for the person who is, you know, like, okay, so here I am, I'm at this point, I'm ready to invest. I've never done this before. How do I get my money into the Vanguard, blah, blah, blah. How do I get into any of these semi-liquid bond funds, you know, where do I find them? (laughs) Yeah. So some of it is as easy as going online or walking into a bank. So my favorite is Charles Schwab. I also really like Fidelity, TD Ameritrade. Those are basically like the ones you just walk in. They have investment counselors, how much ever you want to invest. They'll help you. They'll help you pick the fund. Hopefully they'll do a little bit of work with you on like what else you have out there. 
Um, I'm sure you're going to post my uh, contact information. Everyone's mm-hmm. welcome to contact me as well. Um, I'm happy to answer questions. You can go online and do the same thing. So you can go onto Schwab.com, open up what's called a Schwab One account or Schwab Tax. It's just a regular taxable account, which is basically like your bank account, except you can have investments in it. That's literally the only difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, uh, you know, Chase has them. Any anybody has them. I listed out Schwab TD and Fidelity because they don't have minimums. Like you can walk in there with $500 to invest and they'll open up an account and invest it for you. Um, There are others that have minimums or fees. Those are all things you want to avoid. I talk a lot about this in my book, actually. You want to know what you're paying in fees across the board. Like if your bank account charges you a fee to have money, go get a different bank account. There's a lot of them out there that don't charge fees. Like I've heard fees as high as $32 a month, which if you're like, scrambling is awful. Like $32 a month is so expensive just to have a bank account. (laughs) And yeah, or they require minimum balances. There's so many out there that just don't. So like find out what the fees are and avoid paying them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the reasons I like Schwab is there's no ATM fees anywhere you travel in the world. There's no, like, if you go under your balance, there's no charges on that. They just make you make it up within three days. Like all those types of things. Like you want to be fee, fee avoidant and very fee sensitive. That's what uh, my husband affectionately, affectionately calls me. Very fee sensitive. Who's <laughs> <laughs> fee smart? <laughs> <laughs> That's a better way of saying it for sure. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned the no minimums. Um, is there, even for those that have lower amounts, could you go in there? Like what's what is a reasonable amount to start with? Could you go in there with $20? Could you go in there with, can you go in there with $10? You can go in there with $20. The one thing I'll say is, um, it depends on what you're investing in, not not exchange traded funds or mutual funds or stocks. Um, those are fee free now, but anything that's like in a brokerage account, the broker like Chase, you might have seen this on the news. Schwab, Fidelity, and TD all went fee-free on their trades. There are some that haven't. So you just want to be mindful of what the fee is. And I know, I've know i heard of some um, banks like uh, Merrill Lynch charges high as $60 for a trading fee. So you don't want to walk in there with $20. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it depends on where you're going and what you're buying. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like it would be helpful at all. Yes. Um, Okay. So another thing, and uh, we actually haven't discussed this one yet. So I'm curious to hear your answer. And I thought of it because I'm at this point in your book. Um, so yeah, real quick plug. You want to plug the book real quick? Cause we've, we're talking about it and people might not know where they should get it, but they should Google it right now as they're listening to this and download it. Yeah. So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, your library, Audible, and it's, it's, there's an electronic edition, physical copy. It's called Money Matters. Everything you should have learned in school but didn't. Um, has a little watering can on the cover, so you'll know it's mine. It's nice and green. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Came out in February. It's awesome. All right, it is awesome. I'm um, I'm you know about halfway through it right now, and um, we'll we'll link to it in the show notes for sure. Um, but yeah, so you get to this point where you have a little bit of a little bit of cash and you have options you can invest you can buy insurance and there are you know insurance is wise in certain situations for sure 
Um, there, there's also a lot of fear mongering from the insurance industry to scare you into buying their product. Uh, how do you balance being prepared for something scary that might happen with, you know, you're essentially giving your money away when something scary might not happen. And if you don't do that, you know, you definitely can use that money. I feel like there's, there's, there, there's merits to both, but there, you've got to find the balance. And I'm wondering if you have advice around that. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, I honestly believe that for the majority of people, you don't need anything other than term life insurance, if you're talking about life insurance. And what, it, what that means is it's life insurance that's effective for a certain term. So if we think about this in, in someone's life, right, you have a child and for the first 10 years of their life, they really need you. For the next 10 years, they need you a little less. And, but they do need you to pay for college, right? Starting at age 18. And maybe you have a mortgage still going on. And then from the ages of 20 to 30, or let's say 22 to 30, they need you even less, hopefully, right? So if something happened to you, the amount of money needed to replace you is much lower when the child is 26 than when your child is six, right? That's the easy way of saying it. And there's a point where hopefully everyone gets to a point where they can retire. And so for me, by definition, if you can afford to retire, and I'll, I'll uh, explain the one exception to this. If you can afford to retire, you don't need life insurance. Because if you can afford to retire, whatever assets you have and income you're getting, whoever depends on you financially will have that instead of you if something happened to you. There's only one exception to that. And that is if you have a big pension, like if you were a teacher or government employee and you have a really big pension and your spouse depends on your pension to maintain your joint lifestyle, then you need life insurance to cover your pension, right? For the benefit of the other spouse. Mm-hmm. In terms of how much to cover, I would say you want to cover your income plus major expenses when it comes to life insurance. So if you have a mortgage on your house, like half a million dollars, and then you're making $50,000 a year, and then you also want to cover some cost of college, right? Because remembering if you weren't around and you left your kids with nothing, they would likely qualify for financial aid for college, right? So just keeping that in mind, they had absolutely nothing. Let's say you wanted to cover it. So I would cover for the duration of your mortgage, I would make sure to cover that 500000 And it could go down over time the way your mortgage does. And your 50000 you'd want to cover with approximately how much of that 50000 in income is really going towards taking care of your child, right? So let's say all of it for the first 10 years, and then half of it for the next 10 years, and then even less than that for the 10 years after that, right? And that's what we call, this is a little bit creative, but we call that creating a laddered term policy, where you would have a lot of insurance for the first 10 years less insurance for the next 10, and then less insurance, even less insurance after that, right? So it might look something like you have a $1 million policy, life insurance policy, term life insurance policy for 30 years, another million dollars for 20 years, and 500000 for 10 years, which would effectively give you $2.5 million for the first 10 years, 
$2 million for the next 10 years and 1 million on the trail end. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, it also ends up being cost effective because the younger you are, the cheaper the insurance is. Mm -hmm. So whole life and universal life and all those insurances get really expensive as you get older because insuring an 85 year old, is much more expensive than insuring like a 35 year old. Mm -hmm. Right. So just putting yourself into the shoes of the life insurance provider. Um, it's much cheaper and you can get a million dollars worth of coverage for a 30 year old for like $500 these days mm-hmm. on like a 20 year basis, $500 a year or something like that. And that's definitely worth doing anything above that. It really depends on how risk averse you are. For me, I think putting my life, my savings and my money with a life insurance company is much more terrifying than it is to invest it in a balanced portfolio. Mm -hmm. And the way I like to explain that is if I take my money and I invest it with, let's pick a great company, New York Life Insurance, right? Everybody knows New York Life. They're a solid company. They've been around for a hundred years. I'm giving them all of my, I'm giving them all of my savings. If I invest my money 100% in the S&P 500 fund, I'm giving all my savings and investments and growth and betting on any one, theoretically, of the 500 different companies that make up the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. So for me, regardless of how great the company is, it is far more risky to invest with one company than it is to invest in 500 companies, right? It's not really an apples to apples comparison because they're doing different things. But to me, if I was very risk averse, I would still put my money towards equities or I'd put it at least towards bonds, right? Because if you do the total bond index, for instance, you're investing in thousands of bonds. And if one of them goes bust, it's fine. You have the, the rest. If New York Life goes bust. You have just the insurance that New York Life has, right? That they will pay you a certain amount. So that for me is riskier. But a lot of people think that life insurance is an alternative to a fixed asset because you're putting just savings away into it. I personally see it a little bit different because I think you have individual company risk. And for me, that's also why I don't personally invest in individual stocks. I think eliminating as much individual company risk as possible is the safest bet you can make. That's a personal assessment. It's also the one I recommend to my clients. You can take it or leave it if it makes common sense to you. I mean, that's great advice. And that's a good way of looking at it. Because like you said, the life insurance is supposed to be guaranteed. You know, your family gets it, you know, when you die. Um, You know, at least hopefully that doesn't happen when you're young and your kids depend on you. But when you're older, like, yeah, you know, having burial expenses covered would be great. But like you said, it would be better for those burial expenses to be covered by assets. And, you know, I hadn't thought about the fact that the life insurance company could go under and you could just not get anything. You know, I hadn't even, that hadn't even occurred to me. Um, I was just thinking along the lines of, well, I'm giving it to them and I'm not going to get it back ever. Uh, My family will if I die, but that's it. As opposed to if I put it here, I can eventually say that's the thing if you if you were to die tomorrow then obviously the life insurance is a better bet but if you're you're thinking you're gonna live for a while it's like well I can save it and then have enough money to cover those expenses myself plus more or be able to enjoy them um but yeah 
thinking it could go under. Good point. Yeah. I mean, the other thing you have to figure is life insurance companies are profitable companies, very highly profitable companies. And this goes same for annuities. I get lots of questions on annuities. They've done the math to figure out how they can be profitable no matter what. Yes. <laughs> right? They always so what, win. Yes. So what they're doing when you give them money is they're investing it and earning an interest and crediting you a lower amount of interest. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing a bank is doing when you save money with them and you hold it in cash. They go out and they invest it and they credit you a lower amount of interest. They're always winning. And you want to try and flip that coin as much as you can, right? You know, for a lot of life insurance companies, I see things like I was recently looking at somebody's, you know, illustration or proposal that somebody gave them. They would have to live until 93 to get a two and a half percent rate of return from the from the life insurance policy. Wow. That is a really long time to be guaranteed to live. <laughs> like <laughs> you yeah. probably will, but if you don't, you don't want to screw your family in the process, right? So it's mm-hmm. like one of those things where you just have to figure out what makes financial sense. And it's always good to figure out the intention of the person giving you the recommendation. So a person who sells life insurance is excellent at selling life insurance. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that is what they do, right? Is someone who sells some sort of, you know, portfolio or mutual fund, right? Or something like that. If they're selling that to you and that's their job, they're going to make it sound like it's the greatest thing that there is, right? You know, um, one of the things that's you know, a little bit different about what I do, aside from being a certified financial planner, is I'm also a registered investment advisor, which means I'm completely independent and I'm a fiduciary. So I'm legally obligated to do what's in the best interest of my clients or prospects. So I can't have a proprietary product. I can't sell anything. Like that would be a conflict of interest mm-hmm. that I'm just not allowed to have, right? But insurance salespeople, and I started in the insurance industry, insurance salespeople, They've mastered it. They know how to sell insurance. They know how to like play at your heartstrings. It's mm-hmm. they've mastered it. Mutual fund salespeople, they know how to sell their mutual funds, right? So it's just figuring out the intention behind the product you're buying. And it never hurts to ask questions, right? So, you know, with insurance sales, if someone was proposing an insurance policy to me, I'm like, I would say something like, I know you're giving me the best case scenario on what's going to happen with this money. Give me the worst case scenario and then make sure you're okay with the worst case scenario. Cause if you're not, it's not the right product for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also I've come across insurance salespeople who call themselves financial advisors. So it's like, Oh, I'm looking for, I, I'll advise you on your finances. What you need is insurance. <laughs> I'm like, I think there are other things I might want to consider, right? No, 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 no. First, most important thing is insurance. I'm telling you, we have this insurance, this insurance, this insurance. You should at least have the first five. And I'm like, I think I need a second opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, finance is one of those industries that it's really interesting to be in um, and do the right thing (laughs) because there's so many people and, and honestly, it's, um, you know, it's our free markets. It's so easy to, to not do the right thing. And it's actually very lucrative to not do the right thing. I know this is shocking, but 
Um, it's one of those things where just asking questions, you know, I'm big on that. Ask questions, mm-hmm. ask a lot of questions and people start to squirm and you start being like, okay, now I really understand what this is about. Yeah, totally. Um, Okay, so now let's say somebody is at the point where they're creating their diversified portfolio. You talked a little bit. You talked a little bit about that. Um, so they have six months in savings. They're starting to invest. What are um, you know? So for investing in these other types of options, would you say if you go to Charles Schwab, it's also no minimum, or would you say that you need more of a minimum in order to get into these other kinds of investments? No, it's also no minimum. Just do some research and they actually have some pretty good financial advisors. Um, the other thing is you want to get start, like once you start getting to the point where you're like really creating a balanced portfolio, you also want to make sure you start taking advantage of some of the great opportunities our tax system offers us, right? So you want to make sure if your company has one, you're contributing to the 401k because it's always cheaper that way. You're putting away for your retirement. You want to make sure if you can, if your income allows for it, you're doing a Roth IRA so that your money grows tax-free. And I'll just talk about this really quickly. The difference between a traditional and a Roth, um, because a lot of people don't know, uh, traditional is tax-free on the way in and taxed on the way out. Roth is taxed on the way in and tax-free forever uh, until Congress changes it. But that's what it is right now. Um, and it's for Roths, it's tax free to the beneficiary. So if your kids happen to inherit your Roth, it's tax free to them when they take it out, which is super cool. Cause it's many, many years of compound tax free growth, which is awesome. And where you want to be. So you want to make sure you're taking advantage of all of that kind of stuff. Um, so you want to, you know, make sure you contribute to your 401k, at least to your company match. If they match, if not, contribute as much as you can. Outside of that, you want to make sure you Roth or you do an IRA, whatever is tax best for you. Um, And then when it comes to your investments, you want to start getting, you know, critical about the types of accounts that you're holding your investments in. So little things like I would never have taxable bonds in a regular investment account. I'd have taxable bonds in a tax deferred account, right? So you'd have your taxable Uh, bonds um, in like an IRA or 401k or something like that. And then you'd have your muni bonds or your tax-free bonds in your regular investment account. So all of that interest is tax-free to you on your regular return. Hmm. You want to have, maybe you want to make your uh, Roth since it's tax-free and therefore the last money you'd ever touch, you'd want to make that account as aggressive as you possibly are comfortable with. Because if the market goes up and down like a million times and you're not touching that money for 60 years, it doesn't really matter, right? And then maybe your regular taxable investment account, you want that to be a little more moderately allocated. So because that's like cash you would access if you needed it, that type of thing, or investments you would liquidate if you needed it. So that's super important. Um those types of things. You want to start really figuring out and laying out what you have and where, and if it makes sense to have it there. So like, I've seen people come to me with like, they're, you know, they're 30 years old and their retirement account is all sitting in cash. Like that doesn't make sense because you're not, (laughs) right. Like you want to just, you know, really, if you're at that point, lay out what you have and where it is and see if it makes sense to you, you know? Um, you also want to diversify your risk, right? So the 
don't have all of your eggs in one basket and have as many baskets with as many eggs as you possibly can, right? It's kind of the idea. So, you know, um, we live in an international world. You want to have investments kind of worldwide on a balanced scale. You want to have small companies, mid-sized companies, large companies. You want to have short-term bonds, intermediate-term bonds, long-term bonds, international bonds, right? Like all of these different kind of areas because that's how you mitigate risk. Right. Um, especially, you know, I say this a lot to people who work for companies that give them stock. That's kind of a double whammy. As soon as you get that stock, you want to try and sell out of it as quickly as you can. Um, I've had the unfortunate experience of doing this long enough where I've had a client who worked for Bear Stearns, loved Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns was the greatest company in the world, got, you know, earned a ton of money from Bear Stearns, got a ton of stock from Bear Stearns refused to sell it. It got to the point where in 2007, it was about 60% of his wealth and he thought it would never go under. And then his stock, 60% of his portfolio plummeted at the same time that he lost his job. (gasps) Right. So, because Bear Stearns went under. So you want to think about where the risk is and you want to eliminate it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) diversify it away. Like the more diversification, the better. Um, and just doing it logically, right? You don't need like, if you have a bunch of S&P 500 funds and a bunch of different accounts, you're not actually diversifying. You're actually (laughs) creating a concentration just in different accounts. So you want to just really be conscious about what's happening with your money and keep track of it. And like, you know, I do this for my clients. I actually put all of their accounts on one spreadsheet and put what they're invested in by category on the left-hand side and then have it come across on each account, how much they have in each category so that I can total it up and see if the balance makes sense. You know, um, I personally follow the Warren Buffett rule, never have more than one percent, never have more than 5% in any one investment of your overall portfolio, which like as you're starting to build wealth becomes easier, right? Like there's a point where you're, you're going to have a limited number of investments. So you're going to have more than 5%. But as you start to get, you know, I would say 250,000 or higher in assets, you really want to start focusing on diversification. Hmm. Awesome. Great advice. Um, (laughs) So at what point, you know, someone, let's say someone's building their portfolio, they've diversified. At what point does it make sense to hire someone to help manage your money? Um, And what are the things to look out for? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who will really try to exploit you when, you know, you are looking for help in managing your money? Yeah, for sure. So I would say 250,000 or higher is my personal benchmark. It might be a little bit earlier than that, depending on the advisor you hire and how much value they can provide outside of that. So, and I'll explain what I mean. So when you hire a certified financial planner, for instance, or you hire a registered investment advisor, you're not just hiring an investment manager. I look at my clients' wills and make sure they're in order. I make sure their powers of attorney, their healthcare proxies, their living wills are all correct and in place. I review their tax returns every single year and make sure they're not missing anything or they're taking advantages of all their deductions and their credits. I run their college planning projections. I run their retirement projections. I make sure they have an adequate amount of insurance across the board that they've elected the right health plan from their employee benefits. I look at their employee benefits, make sure they're taking advantage of everything they can slash should be taking advantage of. Um, That 
to me is the minimum amount anyone you hire should provide. The minimum is those things that I listed because those are really the components that make up your financial life. It's not just your investment. It's everything else. And if everything else isn't, isn't properly in place, the investments don't matter as much. And with investments, there's only so much that can be controlled, right? I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen with the market. But I do know if your will isn't correct and you're not leaving your kids money in an efficient way, that's going to cost them more than I could ever make you in investments, right? So one doesn't make sense to me without the other. So I would say if you're looking to hire someone, first of all, ask them how they work. Ask them uh, if they have conflicts of interest. Ask them what those conflicts of interest are if they have them. Ask them if there are any proprietary products or anything that they're selling. I would say hire a registered investment advisor. Um, Look for someone that that literally makes them a fiduciary under the SEC. Um, Because you want someone that's legally obligated to do what's in your best interest, looking after your money. Um, I would also say that you want to know that there's more than one person. So I'm really always hesitant to hire one person. Um, and I will never be just me. Like if I show up to a client meeting, um, I'll always bring someone because proverbial bus, right? I mean, you never know, right? You want to know that there's a team, there's backup, there's, you know, all of that. Um, you also, I would say would want to look for someone that's independent in the sense like they never custody your money. So for instance, like I work for a company, but we don't actually hold your money. We hold it through a custodian, Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade or Pershing, I think. And that means that we never actually touch your money. And if you decided not to work with me, for instance, you didn't want to work with me anymore, you would still have your Schwab or TD or Fidelity or Pershing account. You would call them, you would take me off of it. But where that's more important is to avoid the unfortunate Bernie Madoff situations of the world. The reason that Bernie Madoff got away with a lot of what he got away with is because he was what we call in the industry self-clearing. He held the money, he reported the money, he audited the money, he invested the money. So, you know, in like, if you worked with a a true independent advisor, we're investing in funds that aren't ours, right? We don't have funds that you could hold it in. You're You're held at a separate custodian. We have limited trading authority on your account. And we not only would, for you to lose your money, there would have to be like four layers of firms that go under, right? <laughs> um, again, this is just elimination of risk, right? Like I'm an, ex- as, if you can't tell by this discussion, I'm a risk averse person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to me, financial risk, because of everything that's happened historically in our country is prevalent, right? It's just, it's, you know, and to avoid it, you want to just mitigate as much of it as possible. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of like the big things to look out for, making sure that they offer you all the services that you need them to offer you. And they understand you. They understand your family situation. Um, they don't have a cookie cutter approach. Like don't go for someone that's just going to like stick you in their investment model that makes sense for every single person. Right. It doesn't mm-hmm. quite, life doesn't work that way. Um, how a 30 year old is invested should be radically different than how a 70 year old is invested. 
Um, so those are really the main things. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I feel like anytime someone's a, a one trick pony, that's a red flag for me, yes. you know, like, you know, even like I do something radically different from you, but like, if I only had the one, like one regimen I gave to everybody, that would be a problem. It's like, no, I'm right now focusing on, you know, working with busy moms, but I can have, you know, help a, you know, a 20 year old man to gain muscle. Like I, you know, you, I, I feel you there. Like that's always. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in your industry, when I, when, uh, cause I do work with a lot of people in the health and fitness industry, I always say, you know how you wouldn't give the same shake to every single person. It's kind of like that, right. Yeah. Where it's like, and w- I'm sure we've seen it. Like you see it on the internet where there's like one chocolate shake. That's good for losing weight, gaining weight, <laughs> um, managing your cravings, making you eat more. Like it's all over the place, right? It's, yeah. it's kind of like that. You Reaching want enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, detoxing and yeah. everything under the sun, right? Yeah. Um, mm. You you want to make sure your investments are treated the same way, that it's not one shake for everything. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so let's go over, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make? Yeah. So we covered a few of them in this one is the not withholding properly for taxes, meaning that you're giving too much to the IRS. The next is, um, trying to time markets. I think it's really easy to get caught up in the media and be like, Oh my God, the market's going to crash. It's been crashing for like three years now. If you pay attention to the news, still going up. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so not freaking out. Picking an allocation that's well right for you and sticking with it is like the magic, right? Um, And then, so on that note, if you're trying to time markets, I see a lot of people who are like, oh my God, the market's at the top. Let me move everything to cash. And then the market goes up more and you lose out on a lot of money you could have earned, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that. Um, And keeping too much cash in general, I think is a big one. Um, buying too much insurance that they don't need. You brought it up, so I'm going to throw it in here. <laughs> um, or, or buying anything that you don't need, <laughs> ultimately financial product wise, right? So, like, you know, or, or or those extra pairs of shoes in your closet that you never wear except for that one occasion a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, um, I think not taking advantages of their of anything that's tax related. So, like. I see a lot of people who don't contribute to their employer's retirement plans. I think that's a mistake. Um, Those types of things. Um, The other thing I see a lot of people making a mistake with, honestly, is not projecting forward what life is going to look like. Like you want to know not just what your expenses are this year, but what your expenses are likely to be next year. Cause that's really what you're saving for and planning for is, is what next year is going to look like. And eventually many years down the line, and you'll know if you work with a solid advisor, they'll run retirement projections for you. And if you don't know what your lifestyle looks like, it's going to be really hard for them to project forward in an accurate and meaningful way. Um, I think being a little too, uh, everything's always on the sunny side of things for a lot of people, right? 
Like I would never, if I'm running projections, assume the market's going to give me 8%, even though that's what over the last 30 years it's given, I'm going to haircut that and assume the market's going to give me 4% because I want to plan for the worst case and end up better than plan for the best case and end up worse. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that, I think a lot of people, especially on the younger end of things or what I'm hearing uh, right now, really think it's easy to like retire early. (laughs) Um, It takes a lot of savings. Uh, The other thing that's a common mistake that we haven't covered here is there's a lot of people who absolutely love real estate and they build out their real estate portfolios before they build out their liquid portfolios. And I think that's a mistake because real estate is, although it's an uncorrelated asset to the market, meaning it acts differently than the market, it has its own risks, right? So if you have investment real estate and you have renters, like you have to plan for the idea, like what if you can't rent it out for two years because the market's, you know, tanks or any, or something like that. Or what if something happens to the house? Or what if there are tons of repairs over a period of time? You need to have the liquid portfolio to sustain the real estate before you have the real estate to help your liquid portfolio, right? They kind of go hand in hand but I would build out a liquid portfolio first. Um, that's an opinion, but mm-hmm. I've seen it go wrong the other way. So just throwing it out there. Um, those are kind of like the biggest common things. Um, I get, and, and, you know, related to that is just not doing research and not asking questions. I see a lot of people just get bogged down with fees and unnecessary costs and not really knowing what they're in or what they have. I mean, Listen to your professionals, don't get me wrong, but I've seen attorneys who don't put the right things in a will. Um, and a lot of people don't understand legal language, so they don't bother to ask a lot of questions. Like you're signing how your money is going to get distributed to your children. Like you want to know in English to you what that looks like, right? Um, there's a lot of people who have powers of attorney in place who have no idea what a power of attorney is. Like all. <laughs> You know, you want to just know what it actually means for your life. Um, same thing with fees. Before you go open up any account, ask what all of the fees are or could possibly be. Like, and if you're opening up an insurance product, like you want to know what the maximum charges are within the insurance product. Product, right? You know, I see a lot of people buying things like long-term care insurance. That industry has gotten a huge turnover uh, has gone through a lot of turnover because, um, you know, in 2004, insurance companies were still charging rates as if life expectancy was 60 years old. And it's not. So it's really expensive for them to pay it out. So what did they do? They had to increase premiums across the board for everyone. And people who are like, in their 80s and 90s, got their long term care premiums tripled. Like you don't want to be part of that. Like you want to know upfront that that may happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So all of those types of things are, I think are super important. Hmm. Totally. And so as we're getting towards the end here, what, what are things that maybe I missed questions I didn't ask that you see come up with your clients that need to be shared with the moms and others who are listening to this? Yeah, I think the biggest question you could ask is exactly the question you just asked. And it's going to be individual for everyone. It's kind of like, what am I not thinking of? I honestly don't get that question enough. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, um, 
have their own views of the world and how the world is going to change and evolve. You know, a lot of people, I'll give you a silly example. A lot of people come to me and they say, college costs just can't keep going up, right? Like they just can't happen. They can't keep going up. They're so high. You know what? They can. We don't know what's going to happen. And you have to assume that they can, right? Like you you have to be prepared for that. Because, and then if there is like some kind of revolution on college costs at some point, you figure it out then, but you have to operate from what you know today and not try and make guesses about what may or may not happen in the future, right? It would be really nice if college costs at some point got cut in half, but I don't know, they might still double in the next 10 years, right? We just... (laughs) Ouch, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, those are the main things. And then just... What, whatever you're not thinking about, hopefully whoever your advisor is will like happily answer that question. It's like, what else? What else is there? What am I not thinking of? What else can we take advantage of? How else can I save? Is there anything here that's wasteful? Um, I think that there's so many people where it's really easy to figure out what somebody else is doing wrong. It's much harder to figure out what you are doing wrong on your own. And so a lot of times I tell people, make up fake names and sit there and write out your financial situations. You can write like, Jane has $25,000 in an IRA and it's all cash, right? And you'll realize that that's wrong, right? (laughs) Like an example, but it's like those types of things where you want to just get really clear about what you have, what you owe. And where, like, how you're gonna get there? You need a, you just need to come up with your path forward, and then figure out ultimately what the goal is and what life looks like. Okay, and for those who aren't at that uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollar mark to have a financial advisor, are there magazines or publications or online resources that you can suggest for someone who recognizes that they should, that they would like to be a little bit more financially savvy? Yeah. So I have a couple of recommendations and the first few are going to be very self-serving. So I apologize in advance, but your book, obviously (laughs) my book is the first one. Money matters, people. (laughs) Money matters. Everything you should have learned in school, but didn't. The second is I do offer financial coaching. So if you're not at that mark and you want to work with someone to work through your finances and you can implement on your own, so you don't want someone to take over handling your finances, but you want to just learn more and be guided on how to do it. I do offer financial coaching. Um, I'm launching. If you are in the first tier of people we discuss, uh, where you're sort of at rock bottom, so to speak, or maybe just above it, I'm launching a program. This you're the, you guys are the first to hear it. Um, effective January first. It's a five week financial juice cleanse. Financial uh, juice. Financial juice cleanse. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> so it's literally going to be called your financial juice cleanse. Um, it's tagged out on social media. If you go on my website, uh, which is veronicacaris.com. Um, you'll start to see information about it. Um, if you sign up early or you sign up for my mailing list, we have special deals going on if you enroll before De- uh, December 15th. Because um, I want to make sure everybody makes 2020 their year of getting their finances in order. Um, there's a lot happening in terms of financial literacy programs across the country. So I would just look at what your local library has. I do a lot of library talks. I think libraries are a huge resource for you to just go and learn more on a specific topic 
Um, I'm in a lot of libraries and I know I'm not the only one who's doing it. Um, and then in terms of my company, uh, we publish a lot of stuff on our website. That's completely free, all free resources. You can go to captrust.com. Um, they're awesome at putting out informational stuff, um, you know, on any, on anything that's timely and happening and economics and all of that. So, um, I think those are the resources I trust partially because I'm the publicator of a lot of them. I'm sure there's a lot of data out there. I think if you Google, just Google with a scrutinized eye, right? If you're looking up life insurance and you're on the Prudential or New York Life website, it's going to look a lot better than life insurance on the balance or something like that, right? So you just want to make sure that the information you're getting online is accurate and the best information for you, for you specifically. Okay, fantastic. Well, you already mentioned a bit about where people can find you, um, veronicacaris.com. Uh, you have other stuff on captrust.com. You've mentioned your Money Matters book. Uh, you want to give out your social media pages, anything else, anywhere people can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So I always invite everyone to write to me um, or message me. My, so my, my name is Veronica Karras on LinkedIn and Facebook. I think my Instagram is at Nika, N-I-K-A underscore K-A-Y, which will be changed at some point. She's been that historically. Uh, my email address uh, is veronica at themoneymattersbook.com. And I always publish my phone number everywhere. Seriously, guys, this is really like open. If you have questions, if I can help anyone, you are welcome to call me or text me or anything else. My number is 347-445-2452. And that's real. I, it's it's in my book there somewhere. Like I welcome calls all the time. I'm literally genuinely happy to help anyone. That's amazing. And, you know, I think the thing I love about you most is that you are really passionate about this cause, like really passionate about the fact that people should know what they have to do in order to thrive financially and not be screwed over because they're being educated by companies who have an interest in them not necessarily doing what's best for them. Yes, absolutely. I actually read an interesting statistic kind of related to this in that um, not having financial literacy in schools came out at about the same time that the eight-hour workday came out. And it actually all favors consumerism and spending money on non-necessary things. So somebody did a study that showed out of an eight hour workday, the average person really works hard for three of them. And they spend about 25% of their time shopping. And part of keeping an eight hour workday as a tradition in the United States is to continue to fuel consumerism. You know, we, we go to Starbucks to, to fuel ourselves for eight hour workday that we then sit on Amazon and do shopping for. And we have all these ways to save money by spending money, right? It's like, um, it's like right? I didn't need this, but it's on sale and I've saved so much. Right. <laughs> right. So it's just, I think a lot of um, what I'm passionate about is one that it's not taught in school and so many people are distressed over it. But secondly, I have a vision for a generation that's going to be debt-free. Um, and it's going to take me a while to get there. But I really hope that the next generation that comes up after us, after my generation, millennials specifically, um, after the millennials is a generation that's not drowning in debt. Because I think we would have so much uh, more happiness and more opportunity if 
our financial struggles were eliminated. I love that. I, I am in that mission with you 100%. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I definitely want to have you back at some point to talk more about these different specific situations that come up. Very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I look forward to any questions that anybody has. I am happy to chat or give as much time as I possibly can. Seriously, reach out. That's open invitation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much for being on Badass Moms. And thank you, those of you who are listening. Once again, Veronica Karras. You can find her at veronicacarras.com. We will have links to everything we talked about in the show notes so you can find her. And uh, thank you for you know, thank you to the Holistic Therapies Directory. Um, If you are looking for a holistic therapist or if you are a holistic therapist, make sure you go to holistictherapies.com to find a practitioner in your area. There's everything there from acupuncture to personal trainers to spiritual healers. I mean, anything you could possibly imagine is on this site. And if you're a practitioner, make sure you get your profile set up so you can start spreading the word. Um, We look forward to having you back next time on Badass Moms. And again, if you're interested in learning about my do-it-yourself transformation program, get in touch with me on social media at superbusymommycoach.com either to be one of the five moms. Um, I only have two spots left, maybe less because I've gotten some messages. Uh, So get to me quickly uh, to be one of the five moms who tests it out before it's released to the public. Or you can save 75 to 80% by uh, taking advantage of the pre-sale before it's launched in January and the price goes up. Uh, I can't wait to hear from you and we will be in touch. Have a good night, everybody. Have a good night, Veronica. Have a great night. Thank you so much again for having me on. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Badass Moms. Join us again and get your badass on.